Welcome back to another episode of Stumbling in the Dark. I'm Jason Bott, your guide on this winding journey through the human experience as reflected in literature. If you are a returning listener, you might remember our exploration of Philip Larkin's Abade last week. An Abade is a word that means a song or poem greeting the dawn. Yet, Larkin's tome asks us to greet death. It is a poem on the advent of death, assigning the qualities of the rising sun to the very rising moment of death in each of our lives, and challenging us to consider death as something that might brighten the dark parts of our life as it draws near. Today, we move away from poetry to prose and we'll venture into new yet somehow familiar territory with Ray Bradbury's captivating short story, All Summer in a Day. Bradbury holds a key place for me. I view his writing as unequaled. Bradbury is a uniquely talented wordsmith. And truthfully, I definitely resonate with Rachel Bloom's carnal adoration of Bradbury's writing. Before we dive in, I'd like to remind you why we're all here, stumbling through the dark together. In the words of Walt Whitman, Do I contradict myself? Very well then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. It's that multiplicity of human emotion and experience that Whitman talked about that we're here to explore. And like Whitman... I encourage us to embrace it fully, contradictions and all. Through the lens of literature, stories, and poetic prose, we're seeking to light our own paths and perhaps throw a little light back for others following behind us. For me, the written word serves as a portable therapist unraveling the intricate fabric of my inner life. Each page, each line I read, offers a new opportunity to unlock not just the mysteries penned by others, but the mysteries that dwell within me. So what makes Bradbury's All Summer in a Day such a compelling read? As you'll soon discover, the story transports us to the planet Venus, where he asks us to imagine that the sun makes an appearance for just two hours once every seven years. Imagine that. A world shrouded in rain and darkness, punctuated by a brief moment of overwhelming light. Bradbury's tale is a powerful meditation on the very human experiences of isolation, yearning, the transformative power of nature's beauty, with a subtext on the very cruelty that also lies in the human heart. So if you've ever felt confined or ate for even a fleeting moment of brilliance in your life, this story is for you. Together we'll explore how Bradbury's words can be a lantern in our own lives, revealing the nooks and crannies of our shared human experiences. We'll see aspects of Larkin's poem in this story, moments where the sun promises to light the edges of the curtain as we stand in the darkened room. 
That's what we're about here at Stumbling in the Dark, offering just illumination to help you take the next step on your path. All Summer in a Day by Ray Bradbury. Ready? Ready. Now? Soon. Do the scientists really know? Will it happen today, will it? Look, look, see for yourself. The children pressed to each other like so many roses, so many weeds, intermixed, peering out for a look at the hidden sun. It rained. It had been raining for seven years. Thousands upon thousands of days compounded and filled from one end to the other with rain, with the drum and gush of water, with the sweet crystal full of showers, and the concussion of storms so heavy they were tidal waves come over the islands. A thousand forests had been crushed under the rain and grown up a thousand times to be crushed again. And this was the way life was forever on the planet Venus. And this was the schoolroom of the children of the rocket men and women who had come to a reigning world to set up civilization and live out their lives. It's stopping, it's stopping. Yes, yes. Margot stood apart from them, from these children who could never remember a time when there wasn't rain and rain and rain. They were all nine years old. And if there had been a day, seven years ago, When the sun came out for an hour and showed its face to the stunned world, they could not recall. Sometimes at night, she heard them stir in remembrance, and she knew they were dreaming and remembering gold or yellow crayon or a coin large enough to buy the world with. She knew they thought they remembered a warmness, like a blushing in the face and the body and the arms and legs and trembling hands. But then they always awoke to the tatting drum. The endless shaking down of a clear bead necklaces upon the roof, the walk, the gardens, the forest, and their dreams were gone. All day yesterday, they had read in class about the sun, about how like a lemon it was and how hot, and they had written small stories or essays or poems about it. I think the sun is a flower that blooms for just one hour. That was Margot's poem, read in a quiet voice in the still classroom while the rain was falling outside. Ah, uh, you didn't write that, protested one of the boys. I did, said Margot. I did. William, said the teacher. But that was yesterday. Now the rain was slackening and the children were crushed in the great thick windows. Where's teacher? She'll be back. She'd better hurry, we'll miss it. They turned on themselves like a feverish wheel, all tumbling spokes. Margot stood alone. She was a very frail girl who looked as if she had been lost in the rain for years, and the rain had washed out the blue from her eyes and the red from her mouth and the yellow from her hair. She was an old photograph dusted from an album, whitened away, and if she spoke at all, her voice would be a ghost. Now she stood separate staring at the rain and the loud, wet world beyond the huge, beyond the huge glass. What are you looking at? said William. Margot said nothing. Speak when you're spoken to. He gave her a shove. But she did not move. Rather, she let herself be moved only by him and nothing else. They edged away from her. They would not look at her. She felt them go away. 
and this was because she would play no games with them in the echoing tunnels of the underground city. If they tagged her and ran, she stood blinking after them and did not follow. When the class sang songs about happiness and life and games, her lips barely moved. Only when they sang about the sun in the summer did her lips move as she watched the drenched windows. And then, of course, the biggest crime of all was that she had come here only five years ago from Earth. And she remembered the sun and the way the sun was and the sky was when she was four in Ohio. And they, they had been on Venus all their lives and they had been only two years old when the last sun came out and they had long since forgotten the color and heat of it and the way it really was. But Margot remembered. It's like a penny, she said once, her eyes closed. No, it's not, the children cried. It's like a fire, she said, in the stove. You're lying, you don't remember, cried the children. <clears throat> But she remembered and stood quietly apart from all of them and watched the patterning windows. And once a month ago, she had refused to shower in the school shower rooms, had clutched her hands to her ears and over her head, screaming that the water mustn't touch her head. So after that, dimly, dimly, she sensed that she was different. And they knew her difference and kept away. There was talk that her father and mother were taking her back to Earth next year, it seemed vital to her that they do so, though it would mean the loss of thousands of dollars to her family. And so the children hated her for all the reasons of big and little consequence. They hated her pale snow face, her waiting silence, her thinness, and her possible future. Get away! The boy gave her another push. What are you waiting for? Then for the first time, she turned and looked at him. And what she was waiting for was in her eyes. Well, don't wait around here, cried the boy savagely. You won't see nothing. Her lips moved. Nothing, he cried. It was all a joke, wasn't it? He turned to the other children. Nothing's happening today, is it? They all blinked at him and then understanding, laughed and shook their heads. Nothing, nothing. Oh, but, Margot whispered, her eyes helpless. But this is the day. The scientists predict they say they know the sun... All a joke, said the boy, and seized her roughly. Hey, everyone, let's put her in a closet before the teacher comes. No, said Margot, falling back. They surged about her, caught her up and bore her, protesting and then pleading and then crying back into a tunnel, a room, a closet where they slammed and locked the door. They stood looking at the door and saw it tremble from her beating and throwing herself against it. They heard her muffled cries, then smiling, that turned and went out and back down the tunnel just as the teacher arrived. Ready, children? She glanced at her watch. Yes, said everyone. Are we all here? Yes. The rain slacked still more. They crowded to the huge door. The rain stopped. It was as if in the midst of a film concerning an avalanche or tornado, a hurricane, a volcanic eruption, something had first gone wrong with the sound apparatus, thus muffling and finally cutting off all noise. All the blasts and repercussions and thunders and then second ripped the film from the projector and inserted in its place a beautiful tropical slide which did not move or tremor the world ground to a standstill. The silence was so immense and unbelievable that you felt your ears had been stuffed or you had lost your hearing altogether. The children put their hands to their ears. They stood apart. The door slid back and the smell of the silent 
waiting world came into them. The sun came out. It was the color of flaming bronze and was very large. And the sky around it was a blazing blue tile color. And the jungle burned with sunlight as the children, released from their spell, rushed out, yelling into the springtime. Now don't go too far, called the teacher after them. You've only two hours, you know. You wouldn't want to get caught out. But they were running and turning their faces up to the sky and feeling the sun on their cheeks like a warm iron. They were taking off their jackets and letting the sun burn their arms. Oh, it's better than the sun lamps, isn't it? Much, much better. They stopped running and stood in the great jungle that covered Venus that grew and never stopped growing tumultuously, even as you watched it. It was a nest of octopi, clustering up great arms of flesh-like weed, wavering, flowering in this brief spring. It was the color of rubber and ash, this jungle, from the many years without sun. It was the color of stones and white cheeses and inks. It was the color of the moon. The children lay out laughing on the jungle mattress and heard it sigh and squeak under them, resilient and alive. They ran among the trees. They slipped and fell. They pushed each other. They played hide and seek and tag. But most of, but most of all, they squinted at the sun until the, ter- the tears ran down their faces. They put their hands up to that yellowness and that amazing blueness, and they breathed of the fresh, fresh air and listened and listened to the silence which suspended them in a blessed sea of no sound and no motion. They looked at everything and savored everything. Then wildly, like animals escaped from their caves, they ran and ran in shouting circles. They ran for an hour and did not stop running, and then... In the midst of their running, one of the girls wailed. Everyone stopped. The girl standing in the open held out her hand. Oh, look, look, she said, trembling. They came slowly to look at her open palm, and in the center of it, cupped and huge, was a single raindrop. She began to cry, looking at it. They glanced quietly at the sun. Oh, oh. A few cold drops fell on their noses and their cheeks and their mouths. The sun faded behind a stir of mist. A wind blew cold around them. They turned and started to walk back toward the underground house. Their hands at their sides, their smiles vanishing away. A boom of thunder startled them, and like leaves before a new hurricane, they tumbled upon each other and ran. Lightning struck ten miles away, five miles away, a mile, a half mile. The sky darkened into midnight in a flash. They stood in the doorway of the underground for a moment until it was raining hard. Then they closed the door and heard the gigantic sound of the rain falling in tons and avalanches everywhere and forever. Will it be seven more years? Yes, seven. Then one of them gave a little cry. (gasps) Margo! What? She's still in the closet where where we locked her. Margo! They stood as if someone had driven them like so many stakes in the floor. They looked at each other and then looked away. They glanced out at the world that was raining now and raining and raining steadily. They could not meet each other's glances. Their faces were solemn and pale. They looked at their hands and feet, their faces down. Margo! One of the girls said, well... No one moved. Go on, whispered the girl. They walked slowly down the hall in the sound of cold rain. 
They turned through the doorway to the room, and the sound of the storm and thunder lightning on their faces blue and terrible. They walked over to the closet door slowly and stood by it. Behind the closet door was only silence. They unlocked the door even more slowly and let Margot out. I was all summer in a day by Ray Bradbury. Bradbury's words have a very tangible and palpable richness to them. My first response always after reading a Bradbury story is just to bask in, well, to use his words, that blessed sea that he creates with his incredible weaving of words. Bradbury has done something in four pages here that is both beautiful and sad. We are given for us here on a world where we see the sun every morning, where so many of us have often forgotten the beauty of a sunrise or take for granted that miracle that arrives every single day. He reminds us that for those who don't have it, just a glimpse of the sun is pure rapture. Margot becomes in a way us. And what I mean by that is Margot has experienced the sun more than any of the other children. And we can think of all the reasons why she is different from them. What is interesting is that her very description here is different from them. She appears almost light-like in her description. Margot, who is described as a frail girl that has had all the color washed out of her that seems literally almost white herself as if she was a ghost. And in a way she is. She is something that haunts them from the past of Earth. And as they explore the sun, they have relegated her to nothing more than a ghost shoving her in a room where all that she can do with communication is to knock on the door. Margot, of all of them, desires to see the sun, craves it. She's the one who seems the most convinced that it will come out even when they begin to doubt. And it's her constancy that adds to her separation that ultimately creates or adds to their hatred of her. It's impossible for me not to read this a little bit from 
or through the lens of Larkin's poem. Larkin tells us that death is on the edge, it's coming as a dawn, and, and in this poem we have the sun coming. It is coming, it is coming soon, and all of these children exist in a world of perpetual knighthood. We don't really grasp how dark it is until actually the end, after the sun leaves, and in one of the final paragraphs, we have the boom of thunder, and then it says the sky darkened into midnight in a flash. Again, the tumbling and switch and juxtaposition of brightness and darkness. But all of a sudden, the world is dark and raining this constant water. Just like it's the world that Larkin stands in the middle of the night at 4 a.m. and hopes to see the sun. In a way, Margot has become even with all of them. They have all evened out their inequalities because now they will all have to wait seven years to see the sun again, and their memories will all vanquish into the same level of the past. But I love the way that Bradbury explores memory. And most of this poem actually is and I say poem, truthfully though, it is prose, but it's hard not to read Bradbury's pose and feel as if he's writing a poem. Most of this is an exploration of memory. Sometimes at night she heard them stir in remembrance and she knew they were dreaming and re remembering gold or yellow crayon or a coin large enough to buy the world with. In other words, these memories are seeping out into their dreams and into their nightmares. In all of them, there is this hunger for the light. And if there's something that I think we can take from this, is that that is something that all of us have. We desperately desire to see the light, both physical and metaphorical. The darkness of a rain-enshrouded world is something that many of us know as part of our internal landscape. And this world that is described in Venus, we soon discover that Bradbury wants us to see that this external world is truly Margot's internal world. The rain never stops. Things grow and things are crushed out of existence and it rains and it rains and there is no light. It rains so much that even the reminder of rain outside causes her to move into panic. There are people who, when they do literature analysis, ask us to turn off sometimes our personal response, and I don't know how to do that. And so for me, when I began to explore this, and I reflect that Bradbury wants us to see this external world of Venus as a reflection, a building of what Margot's internal world is, that in a way, Margot is hoping to see the sun so that what is happening internally will pause. 
She is hoping that the sun is bright enough to not only shine and cause the rain to stop in Venus, but that it is bright enough to shine and cause this dark world inside of herself to just free up for a moment. Just as all the students are hoping just for a reprieve, not cessation, but a reprieve from the darkness. Margot is hoping for that internally. Please, I never wanted to move here to Venus. This was my parents' desire. I don't know these people. I don't know this world. I never wanted to be surrounded by rain all the time and to walk into darkness. Please. And Margot is saddened and darkened. And I can't help but view it through my own lens. I said earlier that these words often become a portable therapist. And so with that in mind, and in a bit of vulnerability in this, several years back, I was diagnosed with severe depression. And I can walk through 101 ways of how that feels. Um, I think everybody's experience who deals with depression, severe, whatever the degree of it is different. But I like the way that he describes it here. The constant drum and gush of water, concussion of storms so heavy they were tidal waves. Depression feels just like this. I have been where Margot is and in my own life, I have craved for just a moment of light, that the sun would come out, that there would be just enough of a reprieve, that this internal constant pour would cease. And there have been moments where I have managed to see the sun and it felt like I got two hours and seven years, but it was enough for some of us, just even a moment of reprieve of something bright of some hidden moment that just dawns on us of joy, of happiness, of connection with someone else is enough to keep us going. And yet there are moments too where I can say, understand Margot's pain, where I felt like I've been on the very edge of seeing the sun dawn and found myself locked in a closet. We are not told how Margot responds. When they let her out, Margot is not banging on the door. There is storm and thunder, but it is not coming from the closet. Margot is silent. And Margot may be more of a ghost at the end than she ever was before. I hope they treat her differently. But I also know the human condition is that often the very people that we feel the most guilty to unless we can manage to garner the strength to acknowledge our failure and ask for forgiveness, that the reverse of that is to hate the very thing that we feel we have failed and hurt 
because then it provides us distance. And I worry that their guilt is so deep that one path ahead of them is that they treat Margo worse than ever before. It might be that Margo is broken in this moment. There is also the possibility that Margo's strength internally was solidified. That Margo's experience with the sun is greater than all of theirs. She had four years of daily basking in it. And perhaps she can find gratitude in that, strength in that. I have no desire to prescribe because I struggle to prescribe that to anyone to say, take what great things in your life were there and make that be the very thing that you have, you know, that carries you on and leads you on. That's a weak sentiment that unfortunately works really well from pulpits and get help books, but it doesn't really answer the darkness. Sometimes the best light for the darkness is to recognize that the darkness is very dark. So I don't know. I don't know how Margot answers. There's also a tiny hint here that Margot's release out of the closet is, in a way, anticipated just as much as the sun coming out of the rain. She is in darkness. She is locked away in the light of the open area outside for her as a light that she was forbidden from. And that for all of us, it is on page two of this story that they lock her away. Or page three. Most of the story, she is in the closet. And so most of the story, we sit in anticipation. We start this whole thing waiting for the sun to come out, but then ultimately it is Margot's imprisonment that becomes our greatest focus. We begin to focus on her being released and the sun coming out then becomes secondary so that we anticipate her release more than even the sun. And so I hope it is that way for her that perhaps there is something that can be learned in the darkness. I don't always mean to try and draw trite or cliche lessons from these texts. They're not always meant that way. Most often they aren't. When I say that these texts provide light on the path, they aren't meant to be devotionals. They aren't meant to be tidy little statements that someone could give out and you could run on them or you can throw them up on an Instagram post. The things with the deepest meaning often can't be reduced to a single sentence. All I'm attempting to do is kind of explore the words. But that exploration, it's the exploration that becomes the light onto the path, not the conclusions of the story. I don't intend that these stories, these words, these texts we explore here on this podcast always have a moral lesson. They're not parables. 
but that the act of reading, the act of rolling up our sleeves and wading into the words, allowing ourselves to bask in that blessed sea, that becomes the thing that shines the light onto our experience. And this is a story that gives us no conclusion, but invites us in, invites us to literally find ourselves under both the rain and the sun and the darkness and to experience it as the children did, as Margot does and Margot hopes to do again. The story is both alien and familiar. I find it resonates with my deepest longings and fear. If anything, I believe Bradbury shows us that even on a distant rain-soaked Venus, that thirst for light, both literal and metaphorical, remains a universal human experience. The poet Rumi, the Sufi mystic, said, The wound is the place where the light enters you. And in Bradbury's story, every character carries their own form of wound, each one awaiting the transformative touch and sunlight. I suspect we all carry our own form of wound. Let's not forget why we're here, why we keep stumbling in the dark. We're seeking those pockets of light, whether they come from a two-hour summer on Venus or the never-ending quest to understand the complexities of our own lives. Rumi also said, don't be satisfied with the stories that come before you. Unfold your own myth. In this story, every character carries their own form of wound. We wander through the labyrinth of existence, guided by the power of words, words that serve as both questions and answers, capturing the intricacies of our thoughts and feelings. And in the quiet company of books, stories, and poems, we find refuge. These texts illuminate the darker corridors of our minds, allowing us to navigate our joys and our pains to better understand not just the world around us, but that vast universe within. Each page turned, each line dissected, nudges one step closer to self-realization, maybe even a little wisdom. So as we close today's episodes, we'll carry these themes into our everyday lives. They can serve as momentary bursts of light that guide us through the complexities of existence, helping us take the next step on this unpredictable path. And as we stumble forward, remember, we're all in this often together doing our best to make sense of it all. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Stumbling in the Dark. Until next time, keep stumbling, keep seeking, and I hope that you will illuminate the world with your unique light.